Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Hello. I've off. What's the seaside? Um, oh, I do sort of, like to be beside. Uh, I do like to be beside the seaside. I do like to be beside the sea. Yeah. Oh, I do like to stroll along the prom, prom, prom. Uh, promenade. I was. I thought it was prom, prom, prom. They go tiddly on, pom, 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 pom. So I'm off to Brighton for the Lone Bundy Conference. Now I've got a question for you, which is, do you think I should go swimming in the sea? What's my What's my paparazzi risk? Well, it did uh, it did Neil Kinnock no harm. Well, he wasn't going swimming. He was frolicking. Swimming, swimming, he was... swimming trunks. It did him quite a lot of harm, as I remember, <laughs> actually. For those younger listeners, he fell over while doing a photo opportunity on the, in the sea mm. and then sort of made a nasty sign to the photographers, I think. Do you believe that you are the kind of person who could accidentally fall over and end up looking ridiculous in front of many photographers? Doesn't sound like me, does Not it? Not at all. No, you'll be fine. Get your speedos I mean, on. You're obviously you're obviously thinking about somebody else. <laughs> I think you should do it. Okay. Why don't you try and persuade the entire Shadow Cabinet team to do it? Then it minimises the risk of humiliation to you. Safety in numbers. I mean, it could be quite a good photo opportunity, don't you think? I'm good on these things. Maybe with matching uh, matching Labour branded trunks and swimsuits and um, hats. Yes. And with some kind of pledges on the derriere. Yeah, that's quite in, quite close to the Edstone. I think. Maybe cool. <laughs> uh, keep away from that. Um, Will you be attending any? Because uh, I know that you, in previous years, you've come back and regaled us with tales of yourself staying out till all hours at the discos. Will there be any of that this year? I don't. Not sure, really. The thing I feel often when I go to these events is I feel old. There must be many people older than you. Well, that is true, actually. Mm. My first Lay Buddy conference was 1990. I was either two or three. I think it must have been three. What do you remember about it? I just started working for Harriet Harman. It was my first day, I think, working for Harriet. So 1993, so it was 28 years ago. So that does make me cold. Where did you go? It was Brighton, actually. Was it wild? She lost her coat on the first day, and I spent a long time looking for her coat. Um, <laughs> sounds quite wild. Uh, it's the kind of thing I would do, actually, is lose my coat. And then delegate it to an assistant to find your coat. Yeah. Gordon Brown was Shadow Chancellor. And John Smith was Labour leader. Twitter hadn't been invented. It's a different time, Jeff. 
Is there not some kind of kind of over 50s social group you could join so you feel less old? Maybe, you know how like on the tennis reserve tour, you know, the tennis tour, there's like the seniors. Maybe you, what you're saying is I should be in like the seniors group. Yes, yes. Maybe they could do um, some kind of senior disco where the volume isn't so loud and they play stuff from your era so that you're not troubled by the young people's music. I mean, the funny thing is I found the volume too loud when I was a young person. So. <laughs> Oh, I've got I've got a suggestion for you. Go on. It's just a, a, a phrase to start your speech. Hello, Jeff. Go up to the podium, look around, and then open with the words, as Kermit the Frog once said. Is this a reference to Boris Johnson? Yeah, did you see it? I did read his speech. I, I miss, obviously missed that bit. Oh, you have um, to watch it. Never mind reading it. You know when you see people go on Britain's Got Talent and they're kind of a bit delusional and they, they think they could be a stand-up comedian and then they go up and perform to silence? It was like that. It was like that, but at the United Nations, on the world stage. It wasn't like Susan Boyle. It was not. It was not a Susan Boyle moment. It wasn't them all going thinking this person's not going to be very good and then like being stunned. No, it was them thinking this person's not going to be very good and he wasn't. He didn't get like three yeses. No. He didn't get, he's not going to the regionals. No. So, should we talk about what we're talking about? Mm. This week, we're talking to historian Adam Tooze about his fantastic new book, Shutdown, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. In it, Adam Tooze tells the story of the global economic response to COVID, exploring events around the world from the 20th of January 2020, when Chinese President Xi Jinping first acknowledged the COVID crisis, to the 20th of January 2021, when President Biden was inaugurated. We're going to talk to Adam about how governments around the world responded to COVID and what it means for everything from the rise of China to, crucially, the climate crisis and the future of the Green New Deal. And then our cheerful person this week is Fiona McIntyre, who's founder of Grey Hope Bay, which is a really inspiring community project. And they're building a new dolphin viewing centre on the coast of Aberdeen. I'd love to view a dolphin. Do you like a dolphin? Yeah. yeah. What's, uh, What's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is that I was voting in the House of Commons, as we now do, uh, again, uh, and my colleague Meg Hillier came up to me to say that uh, recently at Parkrun, I had come in a number of places ahead of her 22-year-old son, which made me extremely um, braggy and delighted this is great you see even in the autumn of your years you're able to be a young whippersnapper (laughs) i I, I just wanted to say i think it's great that your age group is getting a booster jab as well yeah thank you anyway that is impressive anyway so i've now got quite obsessed with this because i've been looking online at what for my age group counts and basically i'm at something like 23 15 or something like that if i can get to 22 40 i'm an advanced runner if i can get to 20 15 which may be harder, I'm elite. That's fantastic. And I've got some way to go to be the world record holder. Well, you have, but it's something to aim for, isn't it? Shall I tell you what the world record is, though? Yes. It's 14 minutes 37. Maybe they do special uh, special speed shoes with uh, extra support for the geriatric runner. Or maybe literally like pogo, a pogo stick. <laughs> Anyway, so I'm, I'm on my way to advance. Well, congratulations. It's, I just think it's so wonderful that you're so active uh, at your time of life. Yeah, thank you. What's your reason to be cheerful? Um, I had a conversation with a, a, a woman in the doctor's waiting room this morning, and she told me about something called the Golden Retriever Experience. I thought you would like this. 
So it's a, yeah. an attraction in West Somerset that gives you the opportunity to have a personal encounter with a pack of trained golden retrievers. So I think it's 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 good for people who aren't able to have a dog of their own. It's good for people who um, have a fear of dogs, like they do work to help them o- overcome their fears. And I just thought that sounds great, somewhere you can go and cuddle and walk a bunch of golden retrievers. I think you can even sort of have a, a golden retriever campfire, sit around the campfire with golden retrievers. Why golden retrievers particularly? That I don't know. So I've, I've subsequently Googled it, but I haven't had time to do a, a deep dive. Could it be like a Labradoodle or something? Well, that, that you, could, you could set up one in competition. You could set up an invisible dog experience. I was thinking about you this morning because Sam forgot his lunch again this morning, and so I had to cycle to the school. But then I did pass by Dylan the dog, who's our neighbour's dog, that I sometimes walk. And I, oh, yeah, because the I last felt... time he blanked, Dylan blanked you, didn't There was a big... Yeah, he didn't blank. No, actually, even with my helmet on, he, like, noticed. And he, <laughs> he definitely... I, I got a sort of, uh, you know, a wolf greeting, definitely. Nice. Any closer? Any closer to buying a dog? Mm. No. You were get. I feel like you were getting there. It's hard enough to keep my life together the best of times. I don't think I could inflict that on a dog. <laughs> Reasons to be cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. I'm delighted now that we are joined by Adam Tooze, who is the author of a new book released earlier this month, Shut Down, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Before we get into the substance i've got a sort of personal question which is you are very prolific <laughs> you manage to write a book teach do podcasts do a newsletter do blogs uh, be prolific on twitter i mean man what's the secret of this <laughs> well i'm an empty nester <laughs> do you do you not sleep do you how, is it, are you like thatcherite you're thatcherite in no respect apart from your sleep levels <laughs> yeah, a lot of therapy helps. I really like you thank your two therapists in the book. Yeah, seriously. You know, I'm not somebody who finds life all that easy necessarily uh, on a day-to-day basis. So staying in a positive frame of mind really helps. It certainly gets me in a space where I can be productive and I don't just tie myself in knots, basically. Don't stand in my own way. I mean, come on. I mean, like, I don't need to tell you. It's not as though you folks sit around and twiddle your thumbs all day. Like, it's been an era in which, like, it's been, you know, time to step up in a sense. If you do have a platform, there's been so much that we need to make sense of. Um, so I felt a bit driven, to be honest, also to just, you know, keep up. I think we want the number of therapists, don't we, Jeff? Well, I want the number of his, both of his therapists <laughs> and I want an Adam Two's time management book because I'm the opposite. My wife says to me, what do you do all day? So I would, uh, I'd love a bit of what you've got, Adam. Anyway, let's get into the uh, uh, substance. Um, so we last spoke to you in the early weeks of lockdown last year. I think uh, you'd been planning a book on the climate crisis. Mm. This is a maybe a bit of a departure for you in the sense that it's, it's, it's not a, it is a bit of a book of history, but it's really a book of the present. Tell us what made you decide to, to, to do this. Well, I was in the middle of writing, you know, I say sort of defensively like author, you know, I, I've actually written a third of a book on the climate crisis. So I was I was earnestly trying to do that. And then the COVID crisis started happening. And uh, I can't say that I really was any more on top of it than the vast majority of people in the West. I wasn't paying enough attention, I now know in retrospect. 
But then the financial markets started blowing up. And what happened to me at that point is that I got, as it were, caught up by my previous book, which was this thing about the financial crisis of 2008 crashed. And that was that was written so much out of a dialogue with journalists and economists and policymakers that then when you know things got real in the second week of March last year, I was just inundated with by now friends, colleagues just emailing and asking, like, you know, essentially enrolled in the collective effort of trying to make sense of what was going on in real time. And at some point, I just couldn't handle the the pressure of trying to, you know, think about 1970s energy policy and Jimmy Carter and, you know, the Iran crisis and negative oil prices, you know, by early April 2020. And, and, I, and I, I kind of surrendered to it. And then, I mean, again, my, I think my justification as a historian would be to say that, you know, history could be stuff that's happened a long time ago and it could be working in the archive. I think those are two good ways of defining what history is. But history is also, in some sense, about the mystery that we live, you know, in a present that has a future right now and a past as in yesterday. But then we wake up tomorrow and, as it were, the whole thing moves forward as like a sort of weird magic carpet, right? And we have continuously to navigate this process. And writing from the middle of things actually exposes you to that in a way that virtually nothing else can, you know, certainly not as, a, you know, as an intellectual, as a head worker. Like that wagering that I can today come up with an interpretation that will be published the day after tomorrow and that will stand the test of whatever I wake up till tomorrow is, as it were, the way in which I most directly experience history. And so that's sort of become the fascination. How do you do that? And and you do it very, very well. And interestingly, a key theme of the book is how the different crises we face, and this takes us back to climate, interact with each other. Can you perhaps give an overview of the different elements of crises that you explore in the book? Yes, I think in a sense, you know, think back to the beginning of 2020. It wasn't as though we were living in a sort of, you know, calm world where we thought everything was going to go well. I mean, I think we could, you could have wagered good odds that Trump would blow up the American electoral process, whatever happened. I mean, even if he won, more or less, he was pretty committed to challenging the result, as he'd done in 2016, right? So that was going to happen anyway. There was also profound tension in global financial markets. And then there was geopolitics. And if you look at reports from places like the IMF um, in early 2020, they were all saying, you know, this could really go badly wrong, and it, would, it wouldn't take much. And then from the side comes in this new type of shock. I would describe it as a new type of shock in the sense of a, of a pandemic disease generated out of exactly where we would expect it to come out of. In some senses, of course, there has been a long history of pandemic disease. But as the scientists have been telling us, just, just like with hurricanes, there may have been a long history with hurricanes, but we're getting more of them and they're more intense. And we think they're generated by humans' interaction with the environment. And that's the best bet with this one, too. So that's the idea, is that 2020 is the first of that type of this new type of crisis, where the old drivers coincide with new things which have more to do with this epoch of the Anthropocene that we're in. Tell us the difference between a black swan event and a grey rhino uh, event. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, these are terms that are born out of the moment, right? They've become super, they've become, the black swans became super fashionable because of 2008. And it was sort of like, you know, finance economist metaphysics. Like there are these things that you cannot possibly predict that come out of somewhere. And that's a black swan. So a black swan is a genuinely unanticipated thing for which you don't really have a good description. Whereas a grey rhino is a thing that you know perfectly well is dangerous but because it's grey and sort of slow moving and until it starts charging at you with its giant horn is sort of static, 
you forget about it, right? So it sort of blends in with whatever, the furniture or the background, and then it comes at you. And I think that's, in a sense, what the pandemic was, because if you look back, we've really had no excuse. I mean, you know, every government in the world, notably the British and the American governments, have entire staffs of people. They were like very top of the pandemic preparedness rankings. It's just that somehow there's a big gap. I guess this is, you know, what soccer trainers or military trainers, that they always say, it's very different to practice this until you actually have to, whatever, shoot the penalty or something like that, right? There's a huge gap between being able to envision it and actually being able to act promptly and appropriately in the moment when it actually arrives. And there's something really interesting about what you're saying on this, which is about the rhythm of government. And I suppose this will be my experience of government, which is, you know, the rhythm of government is focused on the sort of here and now, and maybe about the sort of, you know, on something like climate, the long term. But these risk events are very rarely going to be front of politicians' minds until they happen, maybe. Is that, do you think? I mean, there's something about the here and now. And it's also the, oh, my God, this is for real. This is not a practice. Right? It's that actually, 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 this really is the killer disease for which we've run a drill only just six months ago. And everyone went through it. And it was basically a day off and you ate sandwiches and looked at your phone most of the day. Right. But this one is actually actually out there and what is happening this for me is i think it's partly this general kind of difficulty of adaptation it also really didn't help that it started in china because we just exoticize china still despite all of the talk about knowing that we live in a global world and so on it started there and that enabled people in the west to simply say it's a chinese problem with chinese characteristics which the chinese are dealing with in their chinese authoritarian kind of way it'll blow over you know and the idea that that whatever's happening to them actually means we need to change what we do at Heathrow the same day or at JFK in New York. That just didn't, I think you would have been laughed at if you, you know, if, if, if de Blasio and Cuomo had said, even if they had a fantasy Biden presidency, for instance, had said, look, we really need to consider shutting down JFK. I think there'd been a, there would have been a wave of indignation. Whereas that is the only sensible thing for them to have done at that time. You know, if Beijing is shutting itself off from Wuhan, we now know that every major city in the West needs to shut too. And that's still quite difficult to wrap one's head around. Do you think that that would then happen in the future? You know, I think hopefully, fingers crossed, is I know that famous Overton window has somehow shifted, right? That at least now if you said it, you would be able to say, well, yeah, you may laugh at me, but just remember what happened in 2020. Do you want to be the person sitting on the New York-sized disaster six weeks from now? But I have to say, in light of the lethargy with which global vaccination is not being pushed currently, that it's not even obvious to me that whether in the middle of an ongoing disaster, and let's be clear about that, you know, COVID still is an ongoing disaster in much of the world, we still aren't capable of acting and not out of altruism. The question is not like, should, should we be helping out the rest of the world? It's do we want to be reasonably confident that there isn't a nasty variant coming along that's going to blow up our summer holiday plans next year? It's as immediate as that. And yet we still aren't able to connect the dots. I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. It is so obviously self-harming as well as morally terrible. That, exactly. It's indefensible. It's a Hey, it's another demonstration of total irrationality, and it's just really bad business. This is literally as though somebody's offering you a winning lottery ticket for $10 trillion, 
And she said, I, just can't, I, can't, I can't find the money. It's absolutely staggering. I think political scientists and economists, I mean, and that's like the most academic bit of me. Like, as a citizen, I'm just outraged. But like, how on earth do we make sense of this? And you can't even invoke like IP patents. That doesn't explain this because we could buy them out if we were serious about this and then tax them later if we had to. And Gordon Brown, who's done a lot of work on this, says absolutely categorically that there are enough vaccines yeah. in the world to do this so being produced. We're, we're getting towards the point where we're, there are going to be enough vaccines. It's not like you've got to somehow not have booster shots or anything. You know what I mean? It's, it's like you can do both. You know, clearly there are limits and it would go gradually, but it's not even front of stack. Like, it's not as though anyone in the world appears to think that this is what they should be telling their citizens every day. We made you safer because today we vaccinated 20 million people here, here and here. I think something we'll come back to a few times in this is the the parallels between uh, the the pandemic and the climate crisis. And you you write just how dependent the 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 economy is on the natural environment. Do you feel optimistic that there'll be learnings from the response to the pandemic, which will be quickly be applied to the climate emergency? Well, if you'd asked me that before we got into vaccines, like, you know, there's an optimistic answer here, which is, A, look, big, big bucks, high priority, Manhattan Project style, warp speed style programs, all the British vaccine program work. They really, really work. There's very little downside here. This is, you know, money well spent on great jobs in great facilities. It works. That kind of Mariana Matsukatu, mission-led type thing. It, I'm not saying, I don't actually think it is, as it were, the general recipe for success, but it certainly works in circumstances like this. And so you could say, look, that's what we need, say, for carbon capture or, you know, whatever whatever our pet, you know, green energy issue is. And we should be doing it. But the problem is, if you look at our situation currently, you'd say even if we have got the miracle weapon, <laughs> even if we've got the silver bullet, can we organise to use it? Even when we're talking about something that pays off day after tomorrow, Christmas, rather than 20 years from now, it pays off to us, not to our children and grandchildren. I mean, it's that's, I think, where for me the pessimism comes in. On the whole, I should say that on climate, I think as we do more and more of the math and we get more and more serious about it, as an economist at least, I become more optimistic because compared to the big social and economic transitions of the past, or the ones which are in fact still ongoing in places like Vietnam, um, this is peanuts. I was just looking at the Evergrande numbers because of China, right? 480 million Chinese people moved to the cities in the last 20 years. Now, that's a big social and economic change. You know, what we're asking people to do in the advanced economies is like install a heat pump and a little bit of insulating in the housing and then maybe choose an electric car. If you look at us, I mean, we don't have to exoticize it by moving it to China. If you look at France, Italy, any of the places that Brits like going on summer holidays are nice to visit because as recently as 50 or 60 years ago, huge slices of their population were peasant farmers. So those are epic transformations. And the vast majority of the world went through that within living memory. So how we can turn this shift in the advanced economies into a big deal is a little bit of a puzzle and in fact sort of aligns us with the vaccine question. This is actually relatively easy to do, it's relatively affordable and it's really good for us and we still find it difficult to mobilise the coalitions. Isn't the biggest point, and you and I have talked about this sort of offline to speak offline from this, I, I think you can you can argue that the transformation in people's lives is pretty big but the key, your key point, which I think is so important, 
is that the costs of the transition are so much smaller than people might imagine. You know, hmm. the, the, the Climate Change Committee in the UK says something like 0.4% of GDP, I think, net, 0.4% of national income a year over 30 years net. But, you know, we, we're, we're just not talking about COVID scale sums. Maybe you are over a long, over a long period, but, you know, a decade or more. But, but, you know, you've rightly said, look, there's one way of talking about this, which is like a war and so on. But, but actually that rather suggests that we've got to spend sort of 40% of GDP on it, which you don't. No, and I mean, and there's different roles here, right? I mean, you're a geopolitician, and so obviously it's not terribly helpful for a politician to like walk into a constituency and say, this big transformation I propose is really no big deal compared to what happened in Italy in the 1950s. Right? You know, I mean, that's, that's bad politics. I think you're right about that. Whereas it is true, and it may be helpful in a broader sense for a historian to say that, right? The, the, the problem is, is, in a sense, to communicate across that divide and to spell out and to provide mental bridges, if you like, to get from what feels like a huge change to the reality that this is doable. And the question is, what metaphors do we use? And I, I do, we agree that I think in some senses the, the war metaphors, you know, as comforting as some British people find that, it's actually a dead end conceptually for thinking about what we need to do here. Just one other thing on this. Talk about uh, briefly discount rates, because this isn't the problem here that the difference with COVID is obviously COVID is the immediate you know, crisis now, and I'm, obviously the climate crisis is now too, but, you know, immediate threat to life now, whereas the truth about the climate thing is that the decisions we make now will have their biggest effect in one, two, three generations time. Now, that always takes me to the position that you've got to make the argument for preventing disaster, rightly, and truth-telling about that, but also that you've got to talk about the positive vision of what you can create. I mean, that is the genius of the Green New Deal, in my view, is that you say, in making this transformation, we can create warmer homes, tackle fuel poverty, we can have green spaces for everyone, we can have a decent public transport system, we can do all of the things to... Tr- tr- because otherwise, it, it's too far off, isn't, isn't it? I think that's absolutely correct. And I do think offering that positive vision of why this is, in fact, simply a better way to live collectively... Is, is crucial. And in fact, it will pay off reasonably quickly. As far as households are concerned, above all, if you have a supportive welfare and tax system, this could be quite quickly, you know, net positive. In terms of jobs as well, it can be quite quickly net positive. I think, for me, the sobering truth about COVID, and this takes us back to where we were in the conversation a minute ago, is that it's not even obvious that when we're faced with something where there is effectively no discount rate, where we're literally talking about whether we can have a normal Christmas, speaking in September, whether we can connect the dots then. Because, look, we are in the middle of the crisis right now, and we still can't connect up the dots effectively. The desire to go back to normal is so massive. I mean, for me, the other thing we need to reckon with, and this is quite typical of these conversations that I've had is about this sort of issue, is that you've got the pandemic on the one hand, which is treated as a singleton, this one, and then there's climate, which everyone now recognises, on the left at least, as a structural issue. But I think that's wrong. I think the problem is that both the pandemic and climate are results of the Anthropocene. And what we've now learned is that between the famous climate you know, endpoints, 2030 and 2050, there could be another five COVID shocks. Right? So COVID is structural too. 
And that has to now be part of our calculus going forward. So for me, perhaps the way we need to expand this conception of the Green New Deal is to more a greater overall resilience, overall capacity to cope, which includes elements like the pandemic as part of its diagnosis. And I think that's sort of, it's sort of terrifying when you realise the implications of that. But that's why the book ends with like, you know, this colloquial phrase, we ain't, you ain't seen nothing yet. We ain't seen nothing yet. This is... This is just the beginning of the complexity of this thoroughly destabilised world that, that, we're, that we're in. We're not heading into it. We're already in it. But don't you think that it, kind of irrespective of facts, people just think, oh, this one will be over and done with soon and there won't be another one for 100 years. They're not perceiving the threat of, of COVID mm -hmm. or similar pandemics in, in the way that you just described it. And so I think you could have two responses to that. One is that it's the job of responsible politics and leadership and public interventions to, as it were, try to counter that. And secondly, I think at some point you have to say, and this is the sort of liberal Keynesian in me, it's like, well, we have to go on to prepare for this anyway. You know, in a sense, this has to be then the job of experts fundamentally to, to do this and to prepare and to prepare a level of seriousness that, that we have not done before. I want to uh, I want to bring it back to the the economic scale of the response to COVID just in a second. But you mentioned Keynes there, and there's this quote that you uh, keep coming back to in the book, which is "anything we can do, we can afford." Now you know, that that can sound like a, a bit of a sort of folksy soundbite. Can you get into what he means? by that beyond, oh, we can always just print more money. The crucial thing is anything we can actually do, we can afford. What, 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 what he's trying to put across there is that arguments against necessary and important collective action that run in terms of we can't afford that, we don't have the money for that, that isn't in the budget, need to be understood for what they are, which is essentially just political statements that I don't think we should do that. That's not what I want to do. Or, more reasonably, currently we don't have the technology to do it. And this is sort of introduced, I mean, this is an important intervention in the sense that it will become ever more important in, in months to come, because during the crisis itself, it's quite easy to mobilise coalitions of people to do all sorts of rather radical things, largely for conservative purposes during the crisis, but nevertheless, to do the radical things necessary to hold society and the economy together. But the question and the real tough arguments begin now. And if 2008 is anything to go by, then the timeline really is 2010, which is when the arguments really start. And I remember Ed and I talking about, in fact, we, I think, talked on the, your podcast about this last year, which is, you know, the, the argument over austerity begins in the aftermath. And, and it's at that moment that people will begin to say things like, we can't afford this, this, these debts are unsustainable, so on and so forth. And Adam, do you think that the international consensus, which is clearly feels different going into this crisis or in response to this crisis than it was in 2008, do you think it's changed in relation to those austerity questions? I mean, the mainstream establishment consensus? I think it is the, the sort of solid phalanx of orthodoxy has definitely crumbled. But really, it's going to be in the next 12 to 18 months, maybe two years, that this is fought out. And I think it's an absolutely live political issue. And just for our listeners, at a sort of relatively fundamental level, um, to those who think, well, we are worried by the scale of the debts that we've incurred during COVID, what is going to happen to them if interest rates were to rise it would cost us a lot more in debt interest and, and so on. Just give us your sort of take on, on what needs to happen, what's the right thing to do economically. 
Well, within the limits of what the British economy and British society can sustain right now, you would obviously try and reduce the current deficit that you're running. And that depends critically on your judgment as to two things, whether or not you think there's a major inflationary pressure. And there's some side of that, that whether it's really self-sustaining is a different issue. More critically, I would say the labour market is key. But if you think the economy is humming along and is in good shape and doesn't need extra stimulus, then obviously it makes sense at that point to try and reduce the amount of borrowing that you're engaged in because the economy doesn't need the support. The issue to go together with, as it were, and separate that, does choice, which is really fundamentally driven by whether or not there's underemployed capacity that could be brought back in by some helpful government stimulus. If you don't think that's the problem, then by all means turn to the question of how you manage the overhang of financial liabilities that have been built up. But first of all, recognise that one person's liability is somebody else's asset. So this isn't, as it were, you know, just something that we owe to some master in the sky somewhere. The debts that the British government owes largely are owed to Britain itself, right? So this stays within the family. And then the fundamental question is tax rates, A, and interest rates. And this is the question that you have to balance. You could add a third element, government expenditure tax rates and interest rates will then govern the distribution of this burden and the benefits that it generates within the British population. We need to know who holds the debt. We need to think about what the trade-offs are in a fiscal consolidation, how much important public expenditure you'd have to cut, and how high taxes would have to go. So I would take panic out of the equation, and I would simply pose this as a distributional issue, which it is. How much do we want to pay to whom? Where are we going to take it away? Now, I understand that that's a rational, technocratic approach to this, and that's not necessarily how politics is going to play out. The debt will be presented as all sorts of other things. But that's why I sort of approach it in a relatively calm way. The decision on the deficit is a decision about the state of the economy, and the decision about how to manage the debt is a decision about how to manage distributional questions. What you really don't want to do is, in the pursuit of some sort of you know, debt-level fetish, abandon spending on things that we think are absolutely crucial, like the energy transition, or ensuring that the families who are worst off and most precarious you know, are capable of getting through the year or that young people get the training that they need. And and despite the size of the recovery packages that we've seen and the, and the way uh, that we've responded to the pandemic, you think we've done it in a small c conservative way? Well, because the purpose of the measures taken um, was conservative. It isn't really so much the way we've done it as the ultimate objective of the measures so in a sense, the aim of the game here, after all, and this is everyone's fantasy, surely, is to simply get us back to January 2020. I mean, who wouldn't take New Year 2020 as a sort of general reset? If we could press the button, we'd probably all want to go back there. And in a sense, what the crisis period fiscal measures, social policy measures, furlough measures were intended to do was to make that possible. And not just, as it were, for those who generally depend on welfare, but you know, small businesses, large businesses, employers of all kinds, you know, I mean, just an incredible opening of the scale of support, um, unprecedented um, in most societies. And so the scale of the measures was, was in some sense conditioned by the conservatism of the objective, which was precisely not really to shift the balance in society. Having said that, especially in the US, the third of the stimulus packages, the rescue plan that the, the congressional Democrats pushed through this early this year, that's as close to a targeted package, $1.9 trillion of benefits for middle and low income Americans as we've ever seen. 
So that's really remarkable. And we do know that the overall effect of spending last year was to reduce the American poverty rate rather considerably. Turns out, surprise, surprise, that if, if your problem is low income, it can be fixed by the arrival of a check. But those spending measures last year were, were combined with you know, huge handouts to um, business of all shapes and sizes, including small and medium-sized businesses. And, of course, vast monetary measures, which had the effect of compounding the inequality of financial assets. One thing that would be remiss of us not to ask you about, Adam, is is the role of China, because that's a big theme of your book. And indeed, what we learn about the decline of the US, the rise of China from this period. Just say something about that for us, because I think it's it's, it's sort of important for our listeners to, to hear it as a theme of the book. Yes, I mean, you, you can't very well tell the story of the COVID crisis without referring to China. After all, this is where the, the epidemic originates. China is absolutely central to the story. And if the clock had been stopped in February, and I think this is the thing that's a little hard to sort of process in retrospect, it would have gone down as the most serious crisis that the regime has ever suffered. Um, if the clock had stopped in February, it would have been a total failure of public health governance in China, which they were committed to reforming after SARS. And it would have been the largest economic and social shock the society has suffered since the beginning of the reform period. So that's the first phase. And if the clock had stopped there, it would have been a disaster. But then the whistle goes, the second half play commences. And, you know, we run down the other end of the pitch and spend 45 minutes scoring own goals. And at some point, you know, the Chinese declare victory. Um, so that's the situation they then find themselves in. And I think from the early, early summer... Um, there's a real sense of triumphalism on the Chinese side, um, which is quite dramatic in its consequences. There's a kind of no-holds-barred approach to Hong Kong, for instance. But I think, and so you could say at that point, as it were, OK, so China's won, but what has it won and what game has it won at? And I think that's, as it were, another one of the really dramatic changes of 2020 is that the game has changed, or rather that America has changed the game on China. And in the course of 2020, it's barely an exaggeration to say that America declared a kind of low-level or perhaps even not so low-level economic war on China. And what's really amazing is the Biden administration has just continued this on. So I think that's China's situation is, as it were, yes, a surprising win, and then, however, to find themselves in a very different world. Last question from me. Um, and this is a bit simplistic, so I apologise. As you think about the future as a historian, what period do you look back on or what government do you think, OK, well, that's that. And I know this can become very cliche, 1945, FDR, etc. Is there a particular sort of, you know, inspiration we should take from history? You know, I really try hard to resist this. I'm so averse to nostalgia. I'm so I'm so afraid of the way in which history can serve as a kind of comfort blanket, as a kind of escapism. I mean, there are periods I admire. For sure, you've got to admire the complexity of the deals done after 45. I mean, they're really remarkable, both domestically in you know, Britain, France. You know, the sort of multidimensional balancing the Americans are performing at that moment is, is extraordinary, for sure. Um, and I don't think we have the capacity for that at this current moment. But that, for me, is always the, you know, that's always the kicker. Like, for me, history, as I was saying right at the beginning, is about understanding this way in which the present slips away from us to become the past and in which whatever we imagine the future is then realised. And, and history can help in understanding that. In fact, you know, you have to grasp history to immerse yourself in that process at all. But, but it can also be a snare 
I, I think, you, th- you know what, I think the reason I, this is a, a different perspective, but I, I totally accept your point, um, is that if you think part of the problem, uh, I think Obama once said that the problem is not that our problems are too big, it's that the, our politics is too small. Mm. If you think that the, the, the challenge is to be big enough to the moment, which is incredibly hard, taking inspiration from previous periods of history... Yeah, where they did. So, for example, when you think about Biden and OK, it was sort of the early talk of this year that he wasn't going to be a transitional president. He was going to be a transformational president. They clearly drew on the past and FDR. I get it. I mean, and this is why I understand that, folks, we were talking about the Green New Deal. I, I understand that the force of invoking that. Or rather, it's been explained to me painfully by my comrades in the US who say, Adam, Shut up, because my worry about the Green New Deal is that it has the force that it does, because in the end, we know, after all, how the New Deal story ended. And it ended with the greatest generation and victory over fascism in World War II. And so the inspiration comes both from the domestic mobilisation and the kind of sense of that collective leadership of democracy, arsenal of democracy, victory on the beaches of D-Day and on to Berlin kind of narrative. And that is, as it were, to my mind, misleading in a double respect, which is that, A, as a historian of World War II, I regret to have to tell the Americans that they didn't win World War II, that it was the Red Army and the Soviet Union that did, and that our approach to the D-Day landings would have been nightmarish and apocalyptic if the Red Army hadn't killed, inflicted 83% of the casualties that Wehrmacht suffered. And then you think to yourself, oh, hang on, oh God, it's even worse than this, isn't it? Because actually right now we still need a communist dictatorship to save us. Because the fact of the matter is that you cannot tell a story about our escape from the climate crisis right now in which we are the agents. We can do our bit and we have to do our bit. And a polluter as large as the US particularly has to do its bit. But we should not convince ourselves or tell our voters that we have our own fate in our hands. The fact of the matter is we don't anymore. China now admits more than the Europeans and the Americans put together. And so to that extent, this image, as it were, of a progressive policy that gains for the Americans, quite literally, global agency. This is the thing that Biden brings back, you know, America will leave. And it's like, hang on, have you actually seen what's happened to the world in the last 30 years? And so to that extent, it may be mobilizing, but I also think it's basically profoundly misleading. Now, how you then fashion a politics which is appropriate to the current moment that has some of those moments of inspiration, this is where I think history might be more useful. Say, okay, so let's think this from a different point of view for the position perhaps of subordinated people. So maybe the proper inspiration should not be the New Deal, but the civil rights movement. And this is where something like MMT has been profoundly significant. Modern monetary theory... And the key element of that is not just, you know, we can, do, we can pay for anything we can do. It's also a jobs guarantee. And the jobs guarantee slogan comes straight out of the civil rights movement of the 1960s because full employment is a racial justice issue in the United States. And forcing that, that, to my mind, is a more sort of useful use of history. But that isn't a program that previously triumphed, right? That's, in a sense, taking inspiration more appropriate to our current moment from a position, in a sense, of of marginalisation, discrimination within American society. So I think it's very complex, in other words. And what I'm worried about as a politically conscious historian is the way in which certain sorts of historical imagery serve. Yes, they serve as a form of escapism and they, they mislead us as to the radical quality of the world that we're currently in. And it really is 
mind-boggling in the speed, dynamism, the scale of change, the shifting in proportions. No warm baths of nostalgia, <laughs> says Tooth. <laughs> so, that is, that oh, is the headline. <laughs> that is the headline. Cold, cold, cold showers. showers uh, cold showers. Not, that's the title for an episode. Oh, thanks, Ed. Cold, yeah. cold showers, not warm baths. <laughs> well, look, Adam, uh, it is absolutely mind-blowingly brilliant always to talk to you. It makes one sort of want to think more, read more, um, talk more. Great to talk to you too. Thanks so much for joining us. It's a real pleasure. Let's do it again big brain oh yeah and you know this is history repeating itself whenever we talk history on the program as as we veered into with adam even the, though the book is about the the current crisis and the, the last year or so it's always so compelling from what he was saying towards the end there i thought maybe history repeats itself but there's nothing to be gained from trying to repeat history is what he was saying mm. you've got to let it repeat itself you can't force it I want to put that on a poster with your face. It does have the uh, it does have the air of one of those memes people share on Facebook, doesn't it? I know. I think it's like a poster in a kind of in in a kind of you know university wall. You know, famous prophet. You know, <laughs> what did you what, say it again? Maybe we should make some merch. It's time to resuscitate the merch. What did it, what is it? I'll, I'll have to tidy it up a bit. But it was like history repeats itself, but you can't repeat history. But there's no point trying to repeat history. Yeah, yeah, I think that was it, wasn't it? I mean, honestly, that's pretty. I mean, honestly, I can't. I just, I just have to sort of. You win. You know what I mean? Let's just take take it con- to the focus let, group. See let's how it de- goes. Let, let's declare the up some contest <laughs> over. Um, you, you know what I mean? You just, you know, you just, you just win. I mean, it's like we have a winner. Um, no, I think it's very. I think it's just brilliant to talk to him, and I think the book is really compelling. And it makes you think not just about COVID, but sort of climate and sort of where we are and. And all of that. And and I don't know about you, but I definitely want the number of his therapists. Both of them. Yes, please. Both of them. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at Cheerful Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our cheerful person this week is making the world a better place by making it easier to see a dolphin. She is the founder and managing director of the Grey Hope Bay Project in Aberdeen, Fiona McIntyre. Hello. Hi, how are you? I'm well. You know, you, you have your sister to blame for this. She she wrote to us to tell us about the project and it sounds so uh, fantastic. I'm so, so interested to talk to you about it. But obviously, I want to start with dolphins. Now, why is Aberdeen so good for spotting a dolphin? So... 
What we have in Aberdeen is at the entrance of the harbour, we have a mix of the River Dee meeting the North Sea. And what it really is, is a great place for dolphins to feed. So the mouth of the harbour is actually a really nice vantage point to see the dolphins. And so you've got this amazing spot where you don't have to get out in a boat, you don't need binoculars. They're just there almost every day. What's the most dolphins you've ever seen at one time? Um, between 20 and 30 dolphins, probably. That's a lot of dolphins. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's incredible. You know, you'll see them right at the mouth of the harbour, then a little bit offshore, and they're jumping and playing. You're like, oh, there's one there, there's one there. That kind wow. of thing. It's, it's amazing. I know you have this background in, in marine science. Yeah. Do, do you ever think that people single out dolphins for affection just because they look smiley? To, oh, absolutely. You know, they're, they're known as like one of those kind of charismatic species. Um, and it's definitely something we lean on. Uh, you know, it's our hook. It's our entry point to tell a wider story about our marine world. And, and, and putting you on the spot as a, as a marine scientist, is, is there a favourite fact you have about dolphins? I, I like the fact that you can actually identify them from their, their fins. So they're, they're it's a, I mean, you need to obviously have your binoculars and be able to kind of see them. But you, when you see the same dolphin again, you get to know them. You get to know the shape of that fin. You get to know the markings on that fin. And so you don't even need to get underwater to get to know them. And that's quite a cool thing, I think. Oh, that's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let's talk about Greyhawk Bay then. Um, you, you're building a dolphin viewing area. Yep. There's going to be an education centre. There's going to be a cafe. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me your story. Where did this dream come from? What were you doing and how, how did this come about? So, uh, as you know, my, my background is in marine science. So I had been studying in Aberdeen and then working at the Marine Lab um, which is a sort of a research base in Aberdeen and spending a lot of time walking that the headland there. So what you need to know about Aberdeen as a city is actually it doesn't connect with its coast very well. It actually kind of turns away from it. So it's a very unusual city. It's got an incredible beachfront. It's set between two rivers. So it's got a lot of waterfront. And yet we just don't know how or we haven't managed to make that connection and make a way in which communities can can interact with that and so I recognize that as you know as a marine scientist interested already in the marine world watching dolphins leave watching these massive boats navigate into the harbor and I thought well, you know in I mean I'm from Ireland in Ireland we had built a whole tourist industry and went around one dolphin so you know it's there it's there for the taking and so it it started by me just literally saying we should be doing something um, and then asking questions. So who owns the land? Kind of getting to know the history of pro- projects that have been tried and maybe didn't succeed in the past and trying to work out what might be a way forward. And then sort of realising as I went forward with the project that it was going to have to be me that led it. Because originally I just wanted to find out the person with the power and tell them. And then suddenly I was in the space of, I'm going to have to actually do this. And, and talk to me then about the local community. So when you say the local community, are we talking about Aberdeen? Or are we talking specifically uh, about the, the community around what's called Torrey Battery, I think, which is the specific area where you're building? So we're talking about both, but largely and specifically Torrey Battery, the monument that we're developing is part of a locality called Torrey. 
And the way that Aberdeen has developed as a city is it's generally been cut off from the rest of the city. And it's why a lot of people who have grown up in Aberdeen will actually don't know that you can see dolphins. But Torrey itself is a rich, strong fishing community. They're disconnect from Aberdeen, but yet very much passionate about their location and, and their, their own doorstep, I think. So how, how have you tapped into that passion? How have you harnessed that to get behind this project? I mean, I think it's been about opening space for participation. So the way that we've moved and been able to move the project forward is by opening a conversation up with the community. The, the particular monument that we're developing has a deep history. And, and so there's a lot of people locally that have stories to share. And so, so we, we create space for people to come and share those stories, participate and to actually be the ones that push the project forward. So that might be fundraising or it might be, you know, okay, so you're building this glass front of viewing centre. Can we help you with the windows um, and that kind of thing? And what is the history of the monument? Because it's, it's very significant in the community. It, it's an old artillery um, defence base that was used in World War I and World War II. Um, and then after World War II, with the emergency housing crisis, people actually lived there. So for about five or six years, there was about 10 families that lived in, in this monument. Since then, it's been partly demolished. So it's kind of hard to imagine that now. But we have actually met people within our community who have spent, you know, lived there when they were three or four years old. Um, and they've become directly involved in the project as a result. So that must have been in- incredible for them to see it start to come to fruition. I think, yes. Yeah, there's a particular guy, his name's Jim Craig. He's, he works for an energy company. And he's built us a solar and battery system for our facility. Um, I, I think, well, because obviously he believes in the project, but also he he spent six months of his, his life living at Tory Battery. And Incredible. It, it, I think it speaks personally to him as well. And what happened this week then? <laughs> so it's been a big week for you. You're exhausted. It's very kind of you to take the time to talk to us. This week we actually broke ground. So that means we started digging. Congratulations. Yeah, I know. It's... It's unreal because it's been it's been a concept for so long, but actually being able to physically interact with the monument, write ourselves into part of its history, start sort of a, a new phase in its in its life, and yeah, it, it, it so that that happened yesterday. We had a big community celebration, and there was a lot of emotion, I think, around it. And yeah, and like you say, I'm a little bit exhausted now. <laughs> So how how long then before I can come and look at a dolphin as per your vision of what Greyhope Bay will be? So as early as the new year, that's what we're hoping to to get ourselves open and operational. So we're doing it by container conversion. Some of the work happens offsite um, and then the sort of final fit out and cladding and all that kind of stuff will happen so is that like old shipping containers? Yeah, old shipping containers. Yeah, they've been donated to the project. Great. And, um, you know, obviously Ed isn't here because he's, 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 he's in Brighton where he's going to be um, swimming in the sea. Now, he is very competitive. Mm-hmm. And I want to ask you sort of on his behalf, really, is it feasible that uh, a human could ever beat a dolphin in a race? Absolutely no way. They are swift. I mean, you can give it a go. And we do have a lot of people um, from the beach that will go out on their paddleboard and they'll try to get up close, but I don't think they'd be jumping in and trying to 
race the dolphins or anything like that. Well, it sounds brilliant. You deserve a, a rest after the week you've had. It's been just fantastic hearing about what you're doing there and involving the community. And um, hopefully, touch word from New Year onwards, we can come and see Greyhope Bay. We'd love to have you. Yeah, thank you. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're in the outro and uh, I'm even closer to being off to Brighton. What can you bring me back from the seaside? Brighton Rock. I'd love a stick of rock, yeah. A shell. Why don't you, when you're off doing your swimming, why don't you um, why don't you uh, make me a little shell necklace? A, post- a saucy postcard? Would you send me a saucy postcard? Do they do saucy postcards anymore? I don't know, actually. Oh, should I report back? Do, yeah. Also, I'll obviously, um, uh, I'll obviously report to you send you the pictures from the Shadow Cabinet Swimathon. Do that, yes, please. And I'll tune in to see if you uh, open your speech with the uh, with the Kermit the Frog reference. Uh, we should thank our guests. Yes, I'd like to thank Adam Tooze. What a, what a brilliant guy. And the book is fantastic. It's called Shut Down, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. And, uh, and thanks to Fiona McIntyre. Emma Caution produces our podcast. Joel Pierce does all the research and finds us all the guests. Backed up by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Dale Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made our idents. Ed Seed composed our music. And our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been swimming with the dolphins. He's been swimming with the shadow cabinet. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. 